welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Hey, you're listening to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. We are a professional operation. I'm one of your co-hosts. This is Matt Tebby. I'm joined by Christy Penley. The very professional very Christy Penley. Yep. I, feel, and I feel like if you have to say it's professional. No, no, no. Right. I assure you, there's no, we, there's, people are saying this more and more, that we are the people most professionalist <laughs> podcast there is. That, yeah. People, um, people tell me all the time. That naysayer you hear is Ben Sternke. Hi, Ben. Mm, hey there. <laughs> Greetings, everybody. I, I apologize for my naysaying, but I'm in the central time zone. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just, I'm, 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 I feel a little bit off. Yeah. Today. Ben's on a, Ben's on a I'm journey. Podcasting. He's driving from Indianapolis down to Austin, Texas to pick up his daughter. Yep. yep. So she got lost and yeah, it's <laughs> somehow found her way all the way to Austin. It is a long drive. So no, she's done making uh, a pit stop here at a friend's house. She's on AmeriCorps the last year and uh, Ben's going to bring her home and Ben's hanging out with, uh, somebody who works with gravity. Oh yeah. Seth. Seth Richardson. Oh, that's fun. Yep. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's my undisclosed location. Um, Got gotcha you to disclose from it. His you see that? You see I know. I yeah. professionally did that. Yeah. We'll have to beep it out in post. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Y'all, this morning, so I, uh, we're doing a podcast on um, the new Duggar documentary, Shiny Happy People. And so I'm like, I kind of want to watch it. I kind of don't. So I'm trying to figure out how to like get myself to watch it, you know? Yeah. And I uh, I took it to the gym this morning. And while I was <laughs> running on the treadmill, I'm... Um, all, f- all four DVDs? Is that what you took to the gym? <laughs> all the DVDs. Uh, no, I, you're like, I can stop running when it's over. I, yeah, I just made myself run while I watched. It's a little like you're torturing your body and you're torturing your mind. Anyway, mm-hmm. but I go to a Christian gym and you know they're Christian because there's Bible verses all over the walls and they yeah. blare Christian music. Now, yeah. it used to be it used to be that my noise canceling headphones could like drown out the music so I could listen to what I want to. Mm-hmm. But they <laughs> turned it up the last month or so. Yeah. And now I'm watching the Duggar documentary, listening to Christian. Now, if you like Christian music, that's fine. I love God bless you. But when I <laughs> when I want to watch my shiny happy people documentary, I need it Christian music free. And yeah. it was it was a struggle this morning. I had to turn the subtitles on, <laughs> like a like a millennial. Yeah, I had to turn the subtitles yeah. on. Oh, you guys, yeah. pray. For, I, talk, I mean, I think I know what. what a persecuted church feels like. I feel, I feel like I feel like it's a little bit of an aggressive move, isn't it? It's it very turn the music up. Yeah, it's very aggressive. I don't know. Did I think somebody proto- request that? Who See, requests that? <clears throat> I think it's the the people that run the show. They're this is how they do it. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I, it feels like to ask them to turn the Christian music down is like a, you know, why do you hate Jesus kind of thing. No, I just want to like, This I is just, why I work out at home, people. This yeah, is well, why. Yeah. I can listen to my own music. Yeah. yeah. I could have it at my own volume. Well. Yeah. I like having all the equipment, though. Did I, mm. did I tell you guys my story about my Christian gym? I wrote an email. No, I wrote is an email to my Christian, Christian gym. gym. No, no, there's I don't so think it many is. Christian gyms. Look, <laughs> I didn't realize it was a Christian gym. Two we are Christian gyms. We aren't in the Bible Belt, but we yeah. are in the Bible, like what just above it, the navel. And there's yeah, all right. kinds of crap in there. Yeah, pull the out Bible. That shouldn't be there. Yeah, yeah. It, Tell it, us your uh, story. So real quick, I I didn't realize it was a Christian gym <laughs> when I joined. It's just the closest one to my house, and they have all the equipment that I was looking for. And I was like, okay, great, this is fine. And then I started noticing the Bible verses on the walls, uh, <laughs> and then the you know the Christian music. And then I was like, oh man, this is a Christian gym. And uh, the other thing about it is, you know, they got the TVs on the walls, and probably seventy five percent of the TVs are showing sports. Uh, but then there's like 20 to 25% of the TVs that show news and the news channel they select is Fox. And so I'm like, why does a Christian gym have to have Fox news on? I mean, I know probably why, but I actually wrote an email to them 
uh, because you know there, there was all that stuff that happened in the the Fox News, you know, the Dominion's lawsuit and all that kind of stuff. And so it was shown that it was not an honest news organization. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote an email to them, and I was like, guys. Fox is not an honest news organization. Like if you want to have news up there, like pick something less propaganda, right? Like, come on. I never heard back from them. I felt a little sheepish writing it because Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm like a complainy, you know, gym member, but I was like, seriously, this is, this is harm. This is harming people, you know? Yeah. It triggers your Enneagram nine wing. You're like, I'm bringing conflict. I'm bringing the conflict. I'm writing an email, Uh, but I never heard back from them. No, well, they did change it. And it feels like unnecessarily aggressive because I never heard back. So I don't know if it has anything to do with my email or not. But the next time I went to the gym, they had Newsmax on, which is even worse than Fox, right? Mm, yeah. Oh, I couldn't believe it. So anyway, I try my Can best to ignore the news. Channel? Um, you know, you, you might be able to. I mean, uh, I don't really I know how, it- though. The gym I've gone to like three times in my whole time of Colorado Springs, you can change a channel. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I haven't seen remotes, so I don't, I don't know if I can do that. Mm-hmm. That would Maybe. be fun. If I could just go, I'll just shut them all off. I'll shut off all the Fox News channels. <laughs> That'll be my, my personal mission. I'm yeah. helping you. I'm helping you all. Yeah, go to Walmart, get one of those universal remotes, program it to the TVs, <laughs> turn it all over to, you know. Uh, anyway, just turn on shiny, happy people. Oh, and then everybody yeah. Will. Oh yeah. Then everybody has to watch the documentary <laughs> with Matt. Goodness, you guys. Well, oh my. you know, uh, parenthetically mm-hmm. um, and tangentially, this uh, conversation about shiny, happy people is related a bit to our conversation today. We talked to uh, Scott McKnight uh, and his daughter, uh, Laura Berenger about their new book, Pivot. Yeah. This is a follow-up book from the book Tove uh, that was looking at how to uh, what what it looks like to create a culture of goodness in your church. And Pivot is about what do you do if you're in a church that lacks Tove? How do you agitate to bring transformation and movement to that church culture? And so yeah. it was a That's ton a of question. fun. Uh, I did it by myself, uh, Christy and Ben. You guys were able a, to join such me. A big, such a big boy. We're so proud of him. I'm so proud, so proud of Matt. People didn't think I could do it, but I did it all by myself. Yep. No, that I uh, I am uh, eager to hear uh, the interview because I think those are important questions. I think a lot of people find themselves in that. I mean, we talk to people all the time who oh, yeah. find yeah. themselves in that situation. Yep. So, can I ask a question about it real quick? Sure, Ben. Um, is it written for leaders of churches like that, or is it written for people like lay people in churches like that? Both, both. And this is the cool part. There's oh, okay. like this little each, each chapter has like a, a get to work section, and the get to work section mm. addresses. There's whole chapters that address people who are just lay people in churches that they are committed to, have been committed to a long time, but they begin to see issues on how to faithfully and righteously work to bring about healing and health in that culture. It's so good, right? Hmm. So good. We need it so yeah. bad. So, um, it's great. yeah, I heartily commend the rest of this podcast and this book to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, stay, stay tuned, dear listener. Uh, <laughs> Just don't, let's, don't, you don't have to do anything. Just don't hit pause. Yeah. Yeah. It's go. easy. We, we set it up for you. <laughs> we edit it all together for you. You don't have yeah. to go find the file. Yep. All right, y'all. Is it, uh, is it good enough for today? I think that's good enough for today. Let's I don't, go for it. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Laura Berenger and Scott McKnight join us on the Gravity Leadership Podcast today. Laura is a teacher and a co-author of a church called Tove. She's also a children's ministry curriculum writer for Grow Kids and has co-authored the children's version of Jesus Creed. Scott is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary and has written uh, more than 90 books, including a church called Tove, Jesus Creed, The Blue Parakeet. They both live in the suburbs of Chicago. Laura and Scott, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Thanks for Matt. having us. Yes. Now, for those who don't know, Scott and Laura are related. Laura is Scott's daughter, and this is the second book they've written together. We talked with Scott uh, a year or so ago about his book, A Church Called Tove, that he wrote with Laura. Laura wasn't able to join us, but she's able to join us today, which is super exciting. So maybe to kick us off, Laura, 
tell us why you decided to write a sequel to your first book. What was the impetus behind that? The answer to that is we kept getting asked in our conversations for a church called Tove. We kept getting asked, well, so let's say my culture is toxic. How do I form it? How do I make it more Tove, if you will, my church, my organization? Um, and that was the most, probably the most common question is how do I want to have a culture of Tove? I want my church to be Tove, but how do I do that? How do I establish it or unleash the culture of goodness in my ministry? And so, you know, I, I am a public school teacher. This is not my, I never planned to write a book about church abuse and cultures of goodness and toxicity. So initially, when a church called Tove came out, I would say, I don't know. And I would look to my dad. <laughs> like, I just know what the problem is. I don't know how you fix it. But over time, we've done a deep dive into research and a lot of conversations with people over the past few years. And um, it that led the pivot. And answering that question was our primary purpose in writing the book. Yeah. So it was, it was readers who were like, what do we do? If it's not Tove, how do we fix it? And so then the, the subtitle then basically lays out sort of how you organize the book. It's uh, The subtitle is The Priorities, Practices, and Powers That Can Transform Your Church Into a Tove Culture. Scott, talk to me a bit about the research that went into this. Um, who, where did you look? Where did you go? And how did you pull all this together? Yeah, uh, thanks, Matt. It's good to be back with you. I remember our first time talking, we were at a pub in downtown Libertyville that was, with a group of students from another seminary. Well, um, can I just say something about that, Scott, before we go yeah. on? You you were such a powerfully impactful person in my life at that time. This is 2000, what, six, 2005. And um, I was asking questions that felt really dangerous to ask at my seminary. And you didn't work at my seminary at that point. You had, but you were working at another school in town. And you just delighted in, in fielding questions and asking even more provocative questions and really gave me permission and freedom to follow Jesus through what felt really dangerous and scary. So I don't know if I've ever said that to you. I certainly haven't said it publicly, but I just wanted to say that was really impactful for me. So thank you. Yeah, I remember the night. I don't remember. I mean... We've had lots of conversations like that over the years. So, yeah. but I do remember having a good time that evening. And the other thing, Laura, uh, why you asked why she wrote, why we wrote this book? Part of it is she has the bug to write. Mm -hmm. So, so the the book unleashed a bug to write, and uh, it is not easy to get rid of. So that was part of it. But um, research. Um. I figure out what I'm thinking by writing out what I'm thinking. So, so when Laura and I kind of settled on writing a second book, and we had talked to the publisher about it, and, and we had some good ideas, um, I had to just sit down and start writing on some things. And um, sometimes it's just incomplete thoughts that I throw away, but uh, one of the things I wanted to investigate was culture transformation. Oh, man, I was teaching a course at, at Northern Seminary one day, and I uh, this was, I think, before Tove even came out. It may have been just after it came out. A student at the back of the class, after I had kind of presented some of the main ideas in Tove, raises his hand. I didn't know who he was, and he was auditing the class. He's about a 50-year-old experienced man. He says, um, I did a PhD in organizational transformation. <laughs> I went, oh, boy. And he said, this is really funny. He said, he said uh, you have all the wrong words, but all the right ideas. <laughs> and I said, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you don't use any of the terms that are used in organizational transformation uh, uh, theories. Hmm. I said, no, that's right. I, 
I don't know what they're about. I'm just working on this from a theological angle at the, at the moment. Well, I never forgot that conversation. His name was David. And he told me at the time about the leading guru on organizational transformation. And I remembered his name, and then I actually knew someone who worked with him at MIT. His name is Edgar Schein. And so I bought the book, his standard book. I think it's in its sixth printing. And I read it very carefully. And then I dipped into several sections. And then I told Laura, you have to read this book. And then I began to, I, I just listened to him to see what, it, it gave me categories to think about. And the entire image of a peach tree that we use in the book Mm -hmm. derives from Edgar Schein's. He uses lily pads on a local pond. Well, I would like to use lily pads too because I really like, we walk around the, lo the local pond uh, lake in, in Libertyville. But uh, so we used a peach tree and then I had to uh, adjust some of that. And then Laura worked with me. And then, uh, so we worked with an image of a tree. Uh, but what was so important from Edgar Schein was that the culture that breathes in an individual institution for us a church um, mostly is invisible. And you have to sort of work really hard to figure out what these are. Like Edgar Schein, he'll go talk to IBM and live with them for three months or something like, you know, these people, they, they get to know the place to find it. Well, well I'm not going to get to, Laura and I are not going to get to all these churches and live with them for months to figure <laughs> out what's really going on. So we had to sort of, I had to, at this point, this was what I was doing. I had to back off and start saying, now, what can I talk about that is in the soil of a tree that is invisible to people that is actually influencing the fruit that shows up or the tree that shows up? And uh, I was using different categories. And finally, I just thought, you know, the easiest way to do this is to use the manifestations of the flesh in mm. Galatians chapter 5. Mm. Uh, because what, uh, what happens in a toxic church that grows out of its soil are things that drive it that they will never admit, like ambition, competition, greed, um, fame, celebrity. Uh, all those things are actually driving so much of what goes on, but no one will admit it, and it shapes everything that happens. And yet, what they try to say is what's growing on this tree is the fruit of the Spirit, but it's contaminated fruit of the Spirit. So at any rate, that's, yeah. uh, that's sort of the research. And then a lot of it, Matt, is biblical stuff uh, that I was able to put together. And uh, we had less time to write this book because Laura had to get back to teaching. And we couldn't get a total clearance from the publisher at, at the at the at a time that was a little bit more convenient. So then um, I I worked really hard on some on the chapters, and then Laura edited a little bit in the summer, I think, before she got back to school. And she did some re like she told the first story about the church in California with Mike Lucan. Yeah. And then uh, then then she filled in stuff and i as the school year went along i was working on other things yeah and now a word from a sponsor all right let's get back into our conversation laura maybe we can pick up here with you then as as you guys did this back and forth what were some of the things that you feel like were key learnings from you in writing this book so maybe surprises that you had or new convictions that became clear for you as you edited and organized and put this all together? I was very convicted and I don't wanna be so dramatic as to say transformed, but the story that we wrote about renovation of the church, the Oak Hills Church in California, yeah, I still think about it quite often as an example, it's not a it's not a famous or popular book, but it was so beautiful. And I think one of the 
reasons it meant so much to me personally is because I came out of a culture like a Willow Creek and they were specifically using language that described, like they would say, um, we felt like we had to feed the monster every week. They used that kind of language with presenting a consumeristic service that people were attracted to come to. And then if they had great success one week, it was almost worse because they had to feed the monster (laughs) for the next week to make it even better. And I think what really touched me is that the pastors were so humble and were willing to take a look at, they said it ourselves, which was the hardest part of all perhaps, and to admit that we liked feeling important. We liked the fame. We liked the glory. I, he said, I liked standing in front and having a line of people wait to talk to me. It made me feel important. And they read the writings of Dallas Willard and Eugene Peterson. They were so, um, they felt that agitation in their spirit and they listened to it. And then they took an attractional model of a church and completely transformed it into a spiritual formation model. And so my dad had this book. You read it years ago, and he sent it to me and said, you have to read this. And that was it. That was it for us for Pivot. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's, uh... I don't know, an interesting anecdote about this, Scott, there was a spiritual formation forum in Long Beach in 2006. Hmm. And I remember Richard Averbeck, who I know that you know from Trinity. Yeah. Uh, he was my ment- uh, my faculty advisor at the time, mentor, and he invited me to come and volunteer, and I did. I remember being in this auditorium. Uh, uh, the people who wrote Renovation of the Church were there leading a workshop because they were going through this at the time. So I met those guys at this thing. But it was that chapter and then your chapter on character. I remember Dallas Willard gets up, and anybody who ever saw Dallas Willard speak, he spoke very slowly, almost ploddingly, and it was not in a hurry. And he got up and he spent about 10 seconds just being quiet in front of about 800 people. And he said, the first thing he said, the greatest threat facing the local church today are pastors whose character can't bear their gifting. I just remember the the oxygen got sucked out of the room and everybody like sunk into their chairs. Like it was like this really powerful, holy moment. I wonder if um, you could talk a bit about character, uh, what it is, why it's so important, and how does it relate to creating a Tove culture? Um, who are you asking? I'm asking whoever wants to, ch- maybe Scott, you can start and then Laura, you can uh, do what you do, edit and organize. <laughs> I'm, I'm busy writing down that beautiful quote from Dallas. <laughs> yeah, the right. greatest threat facing the local church today are pastors whose character can't bear their gifting. Um, well, I would say that's probably most pastors. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, I, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just, that's a lot to carry. It is um, a lot to carry. Um Character is the long-term formation of a personality with moral shape. And um, so it's not just your personality. It's not just that you're an extrovert or introvert. It depends on what kind of categories you use. Chris is a psychologist, so we don't use the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs. I don't even know what people are talking about when they say I-N-E-J. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know if that's one of the letters. But... Uh, To me, um, character is, let's say, the impact of decisions over time upon the moral fiber of a person. Okay. Um, You know, the ancient Greeks called it virtue ethics, and they thought habit over time produced virtuous character. Um, Character of a leader particularly if it's a founding leader of a church or at the beginning of a church or with great power in a church over time or has been at the church for a long time. 
the character of that pastor will begin to shape people around them. They will be attracted to people around them. And that sort of character will eventually turn into a culture at the church. And without, let's just say that if you don't have a character that is the fruit of the Spirit, following Jesus, you know, I we uh, in Pivot, we use different categories, and I believe they're necessary to use if one is sort of scripturally uh, concerned about how to frame these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think there's any one set of terms that will do the whole thing. And one of the dangers in churches is to set everything in one set of terms. Um, but um, over time, uh, the inner circle of a church will form a character that begins to pervade the entire church into forming a culture. So there is no way away from the impact of culture in a church, yeah. in an institution. Yeah. So over to Laura. Yeah. Laura, what would you add to that or expand? I started paying attention to this topic of character, character formation. It was really when Willow Creek's responses to the allegations of abuse came out. And I felt so unsettled. I remember a couple of times, for example, Willow Creek said they were going to set up some systems and processes so that for men and women, so that men and women could work together. They'd have like a third person present. You, you're familiar with the Billy Graham rule. Bill Hybel yeah. said he practiced the Billy Graham rule. And I just remember feeling, I feel like we're missing the boat here. This isn't, the solution isn't to have a rule or a process or a system. And what it came down to for us, and my dad and I had a lot of conversations about this as we were writing a church called Tove. What it came down to is character. That a person of character, a pastor of character, a church staff member of character doesn't need the Billy Graham rule, right? So that's when I really began to tune into the topic and pay attention to the teachings. Um, The good tree produces good fruit that Jesus talked about. The, um, uh, you could say that the Billy Graham rule uh, is an attempt to constrain bad character. Yes. Um, and I'm not character. saying that that's bad. Maybe it's a yeah. good rule to have in place. I just felt like we're missing the larger picture here. Sorry. Yeah, you can. Interrupt. Yeah, you could stay away from committing adultery with a. You could stay away from sexual assaulting a congregant. But that doesn't get you any closer to virtue. Yeah. It doesn't get you any closer to the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. And eventually, eventually that character is going to be manifest. So uh, one of the things that Laura and I noticed right away (laughs) is that uh, the, the discussion was we need greater rules of accountability. That was sort of the, uh, I, we were hearing this a lot after the Willow Creek blowout, James McDonald blowout the blowouts in the Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Church. Oh, we need more rules of accountability. And I and I would say this. I mean, I don't think rules of accountability are going to hurt anything as a general rule. But we want to have people that don't need those rules of accountability. <laughs> yes. We want to have people whose virtuous life manifests itself in a certain ways that you would say those rules of accountability want to achieve. But those rules of accountability will never do it. You want to have a person who, let's say, treats women well all the time and therefore would not do that. That rule of accountability holding back uh, a lecherous um, man in a church is is not really going to make him virtuous, as you said. So uh, I often said that, is that we, we want to have people that don't need those rules of accountability. Yeah, and maybe to, um, you know, all jokes aside, pivot here from this part of the conversation to the next. Uh, Another quote 
that I heard Dallas say in person um, a few years after this that anecdote I just shared was he was talking about he was talking about how that point Scott you made about rules can restrain evil for a time, but eventually who you are will come out. Yeah, exactly. And he said he said don't don't when you get angry and lose your temper, don't say I blew it. Say I'm the kind of person who blows it. And I, when he said that, I thought, and this, I'm somebody who has a temper. I've got a temper. And it was until it, it was it was going from you made me angry to sometimes I blow it to I'm an angry person who's always ready to blow it. And I have to address that it was a moved personal transformation for me from blaming others to excusing it as just a personality quirk to saying, no, I, my body is ready to be angry in a way that hurts people. Yeah, that's you know, good. That's good. That's yeah. beautiful. See, they Dallas Willard and Scott McKnight say it much better than I did. Oh no, I just Lauren, knew it so didn't. No, I just knew it didn't. It didn't feel right. I felt just unsettled. I felt like we're not addressing the yeah. character problem of the leadership in the church. Yeah, but Laura and I talked about this many times on the phone. So. So even even your sense that it doesn't feel right was a part of our conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, but as soon as I heard him start talking about accountability, I thought, nah, that's not what we need. We don't need a bunch of rules. We need people who. But I, I'm surprised sometimes, Matt, by the people who push back on the importance of character. For instance, what we need is uh, a different theory of power. Or we need a different theory of uh, pastoral leadership. Well, those are important, but at the in the bottom, at the bottom of it all, is a character will not use power inappropriately, yeah, and will lead in a church in a way that is appropriate. So, yes. character, I think, is behind everything, and I believe in emergence theory, which we have in the Tove book. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think this is important. We're talking about like personal virtue here, but earlier, Scott and Laura, you guys were talking about the soil, consumerism and greed and competition and ambition uh, and, and those kinds of things that actually function not even volitionally, right? So I can be in a culture that rewards ambition and I don't have to be aware that I'm an ambitious person, but I'm operating out of the logic of ambition because it's rewarded, celebrated, valued. And it's something that I've just been culturally shaped into you know i didn't raise my hand and bow my head and close my eyes and accept ambition into my heart i just i i'm in a system of an ambitious system maybe talk a bit uh, about this idea of changing a culture uh you in your practices sort of thing you maybe to sum it up <laughs> it to sum it up you say i would say it's like you say it's slow and hard <laughs> to change a culture and uh, maybe say a bit about somebody who's listening who's in a church that they're not in charge of. What are one or two things that they can do to begin to advocate and agitate for transformation and change? Laura, let's start with you. We have a chapter in Pivot for those that do not have power because a good number of people that we talk to don't. Mm. They're right. they're podcasters, they're they're leaders, but they don't they don't have influence or power in the church. So I'm gonna start just by being really honest. A lot of times you don't see it. Um it's hard if you're not behind the curtain pulling it back. Sometimes it's hidden really well. Um, But one thing that that we have found to be beneficial is being willing to unflinchingly assess the culture that exists, being really clear about what the problem is and what you want to change. We have in Pivot, we have a TOVE assessment Um, that groups can take together to assess their current culture. And I don't want to skip over that because I think it's really an essential. And Edgar Schein, the research that we um, based Pivot on, talks about that as well as how important it is 
to identify the, the problem. What is the problem and do so unflinchingly. So yeah. if you're able to figure that out, um, what can the powerless do? We talk about form little pockets of Tove where maybe you have a group of people that are living Tovely and hopefully over time, there'll be some lasting influence and some changes on leadership. You can ask to speak to leadership, to speak up. Um, dad has, my dad has been through this recently. Maybe you want to add to that. Well, yes, um, <laughs> I haven't been through it. Uh, I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge of what's going to happen next at, at the school at all. But um, oh yeah, Sky wasn't even thinking about that. Yeah, the pocket the pocket of Tove is an important idea for the powerless. But what we are encountering, let's say church planters, will ask, you know, what can we do to form a, a culture of Tove as we plant the church? Great question. Our yeah. book, I think, will help people with that. Yeah. Um, but churches that want to make the change, uh, let me begin with this. Edgar Schein says that to change an organization's culture, when people want to change the culture, takes seven years. Hmm. So this isn't a, a series of sermons, you know, in the <laughs> evangelical model. We're going to preach a series on Tove, and then all of a sudden we're going to be Tove. That's just a bunch of nonsense, and it's really damaging rather than helpful. The second thing I would say, I mean, first of all, recognize what you're getting into. Uh, one of my pastor students said, you know how you move a, a piano across the stage in a church? I said, no. He said, one inch a month. <laughs> so if you move it in one week, everybody will complain. But if you do it one inch a month, no one will notice. Uh, and that's that, that's such an illustration of what we're talking about. The yeah. second thing is, uh, we we have a chapter on this, is be an example. It's easy to say we want to create a culture of Tove, and we're going to have the leaders become Tove, and then we're going to get Tove. That's not how it works. Each person has to begin to work themselves, and that's why the Tove tool will, will be helpful. The other thing, the, the next stage that we would talk about is, is um, building a coalition. And that is patiently talking to one another. Now, I believe, I believe our current pastor, uh, my current pastor, Amanda Holm Rosengren, is forming a culture by coalition. And she's very quiet about it. And in fact, she's so quiet about it, I'm not even sure it's happening, but I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> and that's, and I think that's really good. And uh, I think she, I think she really gets it. And I think she understands the complexity of this. But you, you begin to work with one another. What we have so much in churches is top down, is some charismatic preaching pastor who's on the platform every Sunday with great gifts thinks that we're going to do this, and they start implementing a program top-down. That doesn't work. What you have to have is, let's just say someone has a vision. That's fine. But then you have to start talking to other people and listening to other people, which evangelical preachers are not very good at doing, is listening to other people. And then letting this early group begin to shape the culture that you're going to, and then you expand it. And then you let other people begin to contribute to it. And what we find in most churches is people who don't join the program get pushed off the platform and the stage. And that's not at all what, what we're talking about. So we that those are some of the things that we talk about in the book is how do we build a coalition? And it's, it's not that simple. I, I'm right now writing on a book on Jesus and the Pharisees, and he built a kingdom coalition. But notice what he has. He has three or four close disciples, you know, fishermen. Then he has 12. Then he has 70. Then he has people who are sort of loosely attached, crowds who love him. And it just seems like there's just concentric circles mm -hmm. of people around Jesus. And he worked from the inside out. But these other people, he sends the 12 out to do what he's doing. They become agents of the kingdom. Then the 70 they become agents of the of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. It doesn't ever seem to think then that Jesus ever had 
a group any bigger than 70. Uh, so. so if you're listening and your church is, uh, has a weekly attendance of 70 or less, you're okay. <laughs> we'll be right back. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, a 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life God shares with us. It's a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying some new practices. In the Gravity Formation Course, we go below the surface of our lives so we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing. More transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it has helped many to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. Let's get back to the show. You know, we are churches small, and there's been books written about strategically small church, and et cetera, et cetera. But there is something about the distance, the human relational distance between a pastor and her congregation that I think introduces a lot of difficult, complex dynamics to work through in our modern society. The less known I am, the less um, accountable I am, the less I have to be real. The, the farther away my pulpit is from my people, uh, I think creates a dangerous environment for, for somebody with, uh, for somebody like me, who's a sinner. <laughs> um, I want the listener to understand at the end of each chapter, there is a section of, you call it doing the work. And it's a, it's a, like a, a worksheet with questions and case studies and ways to take the concepts or the topics you're talking about and discern and appropriate them for your local context. And I, I think the doing the work section in the book is worth the price of the book. Um, and we don't have time to go through all of it right now, but I just wanna, I just wanna point that out, that the things you're talking about, for instance, the conversation, you have a whole chapter on conversations. And it seems silly or pedantic, Scott, that we'd have to say, we have to learn how to have conversations. But, but we actually do. <laughs> We actually have to learn how to listen to each other and not just uh, preach at each other. You know, know, Matt, uh, there's a book that I refer to there. Well, if I didn't, I forgot. Uh, It's a book on French salons. I think it's called (laughs) The Art of Conversation. At least that's what I always call it. And um, it is amazing how reflective. The French salons were people elite people who gathered together to have conversations that were free-flowing with no intended conclusion of a group that had to agree. No consensus was sought. So they, and, and I studied this, this book, Cravieri, and uh, it was really an informing book. And I, I read this book many years ago when it came out. I've read it twice and that filtered into the need for how to have conversations. And top-down organizations do not have conversations. Mm-hmm. They have instructions. Yes, marching orders. <clears throat> yes. Well, let's. We've, we've referenced this a couple times. I, I want to talk more about this idea of power. You have several chapters that deal with power. Laura, let's. Uh, I'd like to hear from you on this. Um, uh, so I wrote a book in this past year, and one of the chapters of my book was God's Love Always Reckons with Power. And the idea is that in order to know how to love wisely and well, we have to see power and how it works. So as a dad, I'm going to love my 11-year-old daughter differently than I'm going to love my co-pastor differently than I'm going to love my mom, you know. Um, but as people read our book and they get to the chapter that's entitled God's Love Always Reckons with Power, I'm hearing stories of people throwing our book in the trash. Because to talk about power is to be a non-Christian or Marxist. 
Could you talk to us a bit, Laura, about why it's important to see how power works and and how can we how can we come to understand or discern how power is working? Your story of your book being thrown in the trash, it reminds me when A Church Called Tove first came out, my dad and I were getting letters weekly from survivors of various forms of abuse in churches or Christian organizations. And most of them, we, we wrote about sexual abuse, but most of the letters that we received were about power abuse. Mm. So this is a really important topic and it's one of our practices for church transformation and pivot is practicing Tove power. And the basic idea is that as humans, we all have power because we're made in the image of God and we have the power to influence people. And the power that we wield can be toxic or it can be told. And if I wield toxic power, the entire culture that I lead is influenced by my toxicity. And ultimately, we want to be like Jesus, right? Who gave his power away, that he used it to serve other people. So that's the basic idea of pivot is taking an honest, is understanding what power is, understanding that there is a great temptation to misuse it, Like Dallas Willard said, um, you know, one of the tragedies of the local church is pastors who are not using their power well. They're using it to lord over other people, power over them instead of powering, empowering them. And so, like I said, it's a a really important topic. It needs to be looked at. um, And it takes an honest assessment, a willingness to look at yourself and how you are using your power. And what would other people in, this is part of the um, getting to work section, how would other people say you're using your power? Are you willing to ask your staff? Are you willing to ask a colleague, a coworker? Will they answer you honestly? Yeah. Yeah, you you mentioned the first part of this, um, this maybe rubric that you lay out contrasting toxic power as power over or overpowering people, controlling, dominating, uh, coercing them versus uh, how you sort of lay it out as power with and for and through others. Um, Scott, would you talk a bit about, um, there may be some people who would just raise their hand and say, yes, I want power over people and I don't care if I hurt them. But most people who hurt people with toxic power actually probably don't want to be abusive people. You know, they 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 just find it unfortunately unavoidable. <laughs> they don't they either don't have the character or the know-how of how to use their power or embody power in a way that benefits and helps other people. So can you speak a bit to maybe no, no. maybe how we how we can learn how to discern this in some ways, some concrete steps forward into like a toe of power. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to uh, distinguish some terms, but uh, like authority is sort of authorized use of power. Uh, So, and leaders, you know, there's going to be leaders, no matter what happens. You know, I, I often say this, a totally egalitarian church, uh, lasts a month and then after that somebody's going to emerge as a leader in some ways okay so there's natural leaders okay um but i'm big on the prepositions connected to power so power let's say the normal use of power that laura was talking about and both of us have read some diane langberg here we all have the power to influence at some level that's a a fairly neutral category and power over is a toxic use of power to dominate. And it's the way of Rome, according to Jesus. You know, Not so among you, Jesus says yes. in Mark 10, 35 to 45 to his disciples. That's, that's not the way we're going to do things. Right there is a, 
is a is a radical statement that Jesus is now going to say we're not going to use power of the empire in the in God's empire. That's not the way power will be used. Then uh, the prepositions that I think is when Christian power is used properly is pro- is power um, with, and that is when we share power. Uh, you have a platform, and you say, I'm going to give you half the platform, or I'm going to give you 75% of the platform. It's your turn. You you say what you want. And I'm not going to tell you what you have to do. Uh, and then there's power for, and that is you use your power for the good of others to empower others. So you you um, you have a gift, and you say, I'm going to give you this, and now that gift is yours to use. And then power through is when we become channels. It's sort of like power for. Uh, it's not just for the empowerment of others, but the power transfers from us to other people, and we completely step aside. A friend of mine is a pastor who is stepping aside. He's, he's done. And he's surrendering everything to someone else to lead it. And this is... This is um, really scary for people with power who have built something. It is shaming. It is it it generates the normal sense of what jealousy actually means, and that is that people are jealous for their own for their own status, and they realize someone else now has that status, and it bothers them. And you have to admit that you have to deal with it because that's what it means to surrender power. Uh, and then you, you allow them to function and then you become the person who cooperates with that power. So, uh, but this, uh, Matt, I don't think that it disqualifies the, the proper sense of authority or a sense of leadership, but it transforms both of those away from the way of Rome and the way of empire to the way of the kingdom of God. Yeah. You've got a chapter on emulation in here, and we've already talked about that a bit. But I, I think one of the things I notice as I've been a pastor in a local church for 20 plus years now, uh, and I'm having to intuit and improv, improvise my way into an embodiment of authority with for and through, because I haven't been proximal to people I could emulate like that. And I, I know that a lot of us feel like we've got 10,000 tutors, but not many fathers and mothers that we can simply just imitate, you know? Um, and so I'm just self I'm just reflecting a little autobiographically that this is my heart, but I feel like it's all experimentation. How does love live here? How do I carry authority with and for you here? You know, how do I not, how do I not, um, how do I become more and more aware about how I take things personally and how that interferes with my ability to love you? to be with and for you. All these are questions that I think your book touches on and I am really appreciative. Well, maybe as we close, one of the one of the, uh, the gifts of this book is the Tove tool. And I wonder, um, I don't know, Laura, would you, could you give us an idea of what is the Tove tool and, and how do we use it? What's it for? In our first book, we identified the habits of a toxic church, narcissism, loyalty, the circle of Tove. And we Mm -hmm. countered each of those toxic traits with what the opposite would look like. So instead of narcissism, we want our cultures to be empathetic. Instead of loyalty, we put people first. So the Tove tool takes people, takes groups, through each step of the circle of Tove. And they could choose to take sections individually. They could choose to take the whole thing. It's not statistically norm referenced. It's my dad as a theologian and me editing and organizing and adding our own ideas um, to it. But it was created so that it would help groups in Christian organizations self-reflect, honestly assess themselves, 
and then create conversations. And maybe it'll help identify, you know, this is a really good strength of ours in our church. We are very empathetic. Um, we welcome the widow. We welcome, we're multicultural, but this area, this is not so good. We are, we practice too much loyalty to the leader or whatever. And then we, our hope is that that will help groups identify, like we referenced earlier, the problem in the culture so that they can set about fixing it so the church becomes more Christ-like and people do as well. We hope it's yeah. really helpful. Yeah, I'll say the tool itself is is wonderful. And then at the you have an appendix that is like an assessment to help to help sort of quantify how would we know if we were empathetic? Well, here's 10 questions that help you understand and clarify and get a good picture of, are we, you know, are we actually empathetic or are we just aspirationally so? And then yeah. how do we move towards that? Yeah. Scott, would you add anything? Yeah. Well, Laura no, said? no, Laura expressed it very well. Um, it started when a pastor asked me for an assessment tool. <laughs> oh, we didn't do that. Okay. So I sat down. <laughs> started messing around with the uh, with the seven characteristics of Tove, but the point is for us, and it is really true. Laura said this exactly right. This is not a sociological, psychological test that has been normed and made valid and reliable. It's n- nothing like that. that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It it isn't that. It's just a set of questions that we think could generate conversations in a group in a church more in a group than in a uh, individual, but it can help individuals to see if their church institution uh, can learn something about an individual characteristic of Tove. Is our institution empathetic? Well, here's some questions you can ask, you know, like when you fire people, how do you do it? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's one of the questions, but it, it, it's a part of it. Yeah. Um, and, Uh, We think that the, um, I I should say, I think, I think Laura agrees with me. This could be dangerous, uh, this Tove tool. It could could create some people in a group who say, we're really toxic in this area. And it would expose the leaders as having created a culture of toxicity around, say, a lack of grace, that it's a power through fear type culture. Yeah. Well, that's, that's. That's the risk you have to take if you want to grow toward Tove. Because if it exposes the fact that you are a power through fear shaped culture, you need to change. Mm. And to change, you're going to have to admit that you got a problem. Yes. I, just maybe for pastors right now, I, if you're listening, um, that there's nothing this book could expose in your church that's, that's going wrong or bad. That, that your true self wouldn't want exposed. You don't have to fear the truth. And, and like, uh, you know, the momentary afflictions of being wrong and needing to course correct is nothing compared to the eternal glory of a Tove culture and how it forms and shapes us to be new creation people. So don't be afraid, church, to tell the truth, to take a sobering look. Uh, the book, again, is called Pivot, the priorities, practices, and powers that can transform transform your church into a Tove culture. Um, I really appreciate you both being here. Laura, your dad mentioned you've got the writing bug. Uh, what are you working on now? I do have the writing bug. That's funny that he labeled it as such, but I would have labeled, I would have said the same thing. I'm actually working on writing a U version familiar with the U version uh-huh. app, yeah, writing yeah. a U version study for Pivot for our publisher has asked us to submit that. And my dad said, no, he doesn't want to do it. So I got a sign. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to do it. Um, that's great. So I send it to him and he edits and such, but that's my current, current project. That's awesome. I'm also doing some writing for Grow Kids this summer too. Where can people go if they want to learn more about Grow Kids? How would they get connected to those writings? They can Google stuff you can use or 
you could go to my Twitter or Instagram profile and I have a link there to, to grow kids. It's a, if, if you're in the market for kids ministry curriculum, it's really a wonderful package that churches can purchase and use, try out for awesome. free if they want. Yeah. People are asking me all the time about good kids ministry curriculum. So that's, uh, thanks for sharing that resource. Scott, uh, are you going to get around to writing anything uh, anytime soon? See those books right there? <laughs> I'm writing these. I'm writing four books a year called The Everyday Bible Study. Oh, great. So, so that's my that's my main project. And then in the I do it. It usually takes two months to write one. Then on the month off, I get to write other stuff. And, and I'm working on a book for Fortress. Uh, that has the unofficial title, Jesus and the Pharisees. Yeah. So it doesn't really have a title. It's just, that's what I'm working that's on. That's the topic, and, uh, yeah. And uh, that's sort of my project. But but I have a book. We just got offered a contract with a former student of mine who's a pastor in Tampa. And we wanted to call it the Prophetic Voice of Deconstruction. But they didn't want that title. So it's called... Losing Your Religion Without Losing Jesus, and the subtitle, listen to this, you'll love it. The Exit Interviews Your Church Leaders Never Heard. Oh, man. Ooh. <laughs> so, that so sounds we ha- so good. Why didn't I get does. invited to do that? <laughs> well, this was, uh, it was, it grew out of a, a student's thesis, and we began to work together on it. <sighs> and the next thing you know, I said, Tommy, we got a book here. That's so good. So, yeah. All right. Well, maybe so, we'll get you and Tommy to come on and chat about that a little bit. Um, yeah. At the later yeah. date. But how the, the editor uh, at Zondervan, Zondervan Reflected, came up with, he said, you know, this book is sort of like the exit interviews that your church never gave. And I thought, there it is. That's great. There it is. That's such a maybe great Maybe that title. could be the title. The yeah. exit. Yeah. Cool. Well, Laura and Scott. It was a pleasure being with you. Thanks for uh, spending some time with us today. Thank you, Matt. I'm so sad that we weren't there for that, Ben. Uh, Me too. Me too. It would have been a good conversation. I Uh, like Scott McKnight. mm -hmm, He's one of my favorites. Yes. um, It reminded me of... um, of something I've been thinking about. You guys know how the Big Apple is in New York? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever wondered where the Minneapolis is? Oh, no, I did it wrong. Oh! <laughs> I knew this would happen. <laughs> oh, shoot. I, I should have practiced it. You Sorry. didn't let's, practice the joke. No, let's try it no, again. no, no, no. We're, there's no trying again. Oh, my gosh. Do this you is know so where funny. the Minneapolis Ben, I've waited... Do you know where the Minneapolis is? 15 years to say this to you. Yeah. Where the and our friendship. Are? But yeah. Ben, let, let this be a lesson to you. Let this be a lesson to you. <laughs> <laughs> Practice oh the goodness. joke ahead of time. Because no. it is hard to say Minneapolis. It is. Because you have to like, yeah. Minneapolis. So many problems is, in telling jokes. Is, yep. You have to have, kind of bridge mm-hmm. the gap. You can't say R. Do you know where, where the, the Minneapolis, Minneapolis are? Minneapolis. Oh, oh boy. Not many, Christy, many. Okay. It's the Mini. opposite sorry, of big. Sorry, sorry. Uh, we are the not big apple. We don't have time to re-record this. The mini apple, Christy. At the beginning, we said we were professionals, but mm-hmm. clearly, we need some work. Maybe we're just amateurs at telling jokes. All right, Christy. Knock yes. knock. Oh, who's there? Daisy. Daisy who? Daisy me rolling. <laughs> De Hayden, come on, that was a good one. <laughs> I bet Cece loved that one. <laughs> the girl, I'm not. Su- I'm surprised she still has her eyeballs in her head because they <laughs> routinely roll out of them. Just do like three sixties. Okay, listen, listeners. If you have a joke, can you just send it in? Because maybe I could be one to tell send a joke. Send it Christy. to Christy. But but I need it to like be secret. Somehow find me on social media or something. Or just, send, or just, or send or just email. email. But sometimes you get those, don't you? Not the Don't ones send that it go to, to the Christy. general ones. Send it yeah. to Christy at Gravity Leadership. Leadership.com. Leadership. Yep. Yeah. All right. And then I'll tell a joke next time. All right. All right. With that, 
<sighs> Peace out, friends. I'm so sorry about that, everybody. Sorry about that. They Minneapolis. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Joining our Gravity community is free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the podcast, and you can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start record button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.